0: Welcome back to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host Michael Pagani, joined alongside Sportsnet reporter Sean Reynolds. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you again for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I just want to talk about, I guess, just to open up this uh, interview here. Like, how has your mental health been affected by this pandemic? Um, you know, Michael, I I feel like I haven't
1: personally been overly affected by it. I mean, like, you got to watch your loved ones. Uh, Uh, You know, my kids, they're 11 and the other's about to turn 10. So they were, you know, nine and and eight when this started up. And, and, uh, you know, so you kind of watch over them. You make sure that things are going well in school. I mean, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. I stayed employed through the entire thing. Uh, I got to, you know, in this time frame, I got to work on two Stanley Cup finals. Uh, Throughout this situation. Um, So for me, I mean, you know, there was, uh, there's a little bit of stress, you know, job security and stuff like that becomes a question in these situations, like it would have been for a lot of people. So I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't without stress, it had its stressful moments, but, you know, I consider myself one of the lucky ones through, through this entire situation, I got to keep working, I got to keep watching hockey, I got to keep, you know, uh, checking sports out everyone stayed healthy on our end no one in my family contracted COVID um, I, I'm double vaccinated now uh, so yeah I'm looking forward to, to you know brighter times things turning a little bit back to normal uh, but I have to say you know I felt like things w- were, were good for me throughout it and I'm, I'm thankful that it, they were.
0: You know, that's great to hear because obviously with uh, sports journalism, with it being such a competitive market, you know, I felt like a lot of people were, you know, kind of worried about their job security, you know, given this pandemic.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, there were definitely changes. I, I wasn't, uh, I didn't do any hockey night in Canada broadcast this year, which I usually do uh, because the way that travel went, you know, Scott Oak, who's the best in the business lives in Winnipeg, just like I do. Um, and so while he's usually taking care of after hours and, and uh, those kind of uh, uh, responsibilities, the late night game on hockey night in Canada, he was, you know, we weren't allowed to travel and the best, you know, you got to clear the track for the best. And that's what, that's what, you know, you did in that situation. And, you know, I missed being on the broadcast, but in the meantime, started up a podcast with uh, my Sportsnet coworker, Ken Weeb in Winnipeg here, something that we were really excited about. So, I mean, a lot of times it's about directing energy and finding a place to direct energy. And, you know, the fact that we found a place that, you know, I could direct a lot of my, uh, you know, professional energy uh, into something that we felt was really meaningful and and something that we're really proud of. You know, it it was a different kind of year, but, you know, it it created something that probably wouldn't have existed if the year had been different and if the circumstances hadn't been different. So I actually take out of it a lot of positives.
0: And, you know, I think that's such a big point uh, to mention there is try to take as many positives as you can, because, you know, this year, these past two years have been so negative with the whole pandemic and how we really haven't been able to see anyone.
1: Well, and I I don't say, you know, like take the positives out of it just in in the way that I mean, you always want to try and look at the positive situation, but you don't want to ignore the the tough times that a lot of people are going through. And so, I mean, a lot of this was, you know, getting through this was like just kind of calling up friends that you haven't seen or heard from for a while and just checking in to make sure, you know, things were going good with them. And uh, I mean, I, I I love doing that. I, I If it ever happens to me, I absolutely enjoy when, you know, you get that surprise call from someone you haven't talked to in a while. But I love doing that and just kind of dropping in and checking in on people and, and making sure they're doing well. And so I think it, it, in a lot of ways, you know, this situation brought people together. I mean, look at us, we're talking on this situation on on, uh, your podcast here. And it's not that that wouldn't have happened before, but I think this became a lot more common people doing this kind of stuff and reaching out and connecting. So I've connected with a lot of people like yourself that I didn't know before this situation because of this. And, and, uh, You know, so again, I mean, I'm really looking forward to the day you're wearing a Tiger Cats hat. I went to the bomber game last night in Winnipeg and it was great to be in a place. You know, everyone there was you had to be double vaxxed to get in there. So a stadium full of double vaxxed people, it felt really good to kind of get out and get into public, try and be safe about it, you know, but try and get back to normal and get to the back to the things that we like to do. Uh, So I'm looking forward to the, the face to face connections that I so much enjoy. But, you know, the connections that we made through you know, Zoom and and formats like this, uh, I thought were absolutely crucial uh, and really kind of were, you
0: know, a diamond in the rough to find in this situation. Before I ask uh, my next question here, I just want to add to your point there with the Bombers and Ticats, you know, uh, it was definitely a rough game. It was a good game for the (laughs) Ticats to start, but uh, you know, definitely a rough finish. Uh, But, you know, for you, like, that must be so fun being back in an arena with full fans, you know, hearing the crowd because you you know as a sports reporter you know covering the Winnipeg Jets basically throughout the whole season you never really got that feeling
1: yeah I I, I was lucky enough to kind of get it when I was in Montreal uh, mm-hmm. because I yeah. covered the Jets in the second round with Montreal and then I stayed with the Canadians through the third and fourth round uh, and it was my job before the broadcast to to kind of go out in the street party and so I was kind of swamped by people out there and it was uh, i mean that that's the kind of stuff i like doing in my career i like the chaos you know i i actually when i'm doing lives and broadcasts and stuff like that when you get in a real sanitized environment where nothing's happening i i, I don't like that feeling as much but if you stick people around screaming in my ear and like pat me on the back and you know the fans going crazy that's my favorite thing to do there's something about the chaos that quiets my mind and so those kind of assignments i absolutely love i was lucky enough that uh, i was tasked with doing that for the for the broadcasts and and uh it, it was a ton of fun so to get back to the point about being at the game last night it's again to to make sure that we're paying mind so that everyone approaches these things different i'm anxious to get things back to normal you know some of the people i went with to the game last night aren't as comfortable right and so it was a little bit tricky navigating that going through a crowd of people where you're like squashed shoulder to shoulder and trying to get through people i know that that brought a lot of anxiety to people last night uh you know and we're all just trying to work our way back to something that works best for us and so i acknowledge that and and know that some of the for some people that was a challenge Uh, But yeah, just being understanding of people and the different challenges they face and and supportive of them to get through those challenges. um, Hopefully we can get back to a place where everyone's just kind of really comfortable being, you know, close to what we were
0: before we went into this. Getting into your, you know, I guess story here uh, to start, you know, who influenced you to get into sports journalism?
1: Well, you know who I, uh, when, when I went to, it's um, a good question. When I went to uh, uh, Ryerson, we had to write, uh, write you know, uh, uh, basically a little essay on, on someone that we kind of followed and, and someone who inspired us to do things. I, I wrote something on Al Strachan, who used to be on Hot Stove. Uh, a great writer. I uh, re- read a couple of his books as well. Um, but I remember distinctly the piece that I wrote. And, and I, I do think that it may like, in retrospect, I didn't know a lot about journalism at the time, like you got in and you wrote, I wanted to be a sports writer, I never wanted to be on TV. But what I always admired about Al Strachan was his fearlessness and the way that he just I mean, he said what he believed and you knew what he was saying was what he believed he he wasn't a troll. In that, some people would call him a troll, but he wasn't a troll in the way that he didn't say things just to specifically get a reaction. He said it because it was the unvarnished truth about what he thought. Uh, and I, I always really admired that about him and kind of loved those kind of journalists that are willing to do that. You know, I, I I'm not the biggest fan of guys who say something just to get a reaction. There's a lot of really successful people in our industry who do that, you know, and good on them. And a lot of people like that kind of element. It's not what I like as much as just when I get someone who I know, if they say something and it's not controversial, but it's what they believe, then that's great. But if they say something and it's what they believe and it's controversial, and they're not afraid to go there, I've got a ton of admiration for that practice of journalism. So if I had to say one guy, now I'll say this, I never looked at anyone and said, I want to do that. One day I came from a really small town in Manitoba where, you know, most of the, the, the guys that I went to school with stayed in that town. And that was kind of, You know, it it can be hard when you come from a small town like that and you don't see a lot of people going on to do things like what I've done. It's hard to think that you can do those kind of things. Right. And so I never believed that I could be that. I was actually on my way to being a phys ed teacher. I already had a a phys ed degree uh, from the University of Manitoba and I was just about to finish up my education degree. I was already student teaching in schools when I decided, you know, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, So I kind of just at some point in life where I was just not going getting to where I wanted to go and didn't really know where I wanted to go I just kind of took a look back and said what do I like doing this is what I like doing so I'm going to go after it so I mean I admired people like Al Strack and there was it really wasn't anyone though that I looked at and said they're doing that I want to do it it just kind of landed on you know I want to go in this direction and, and started pushing in that direction
0: you know, you mentioned that you never really liked being on television or that wasn't your end goal, but now yeah. you kind of are on television. So like, what's kind of your point of view there?
1: Well, when I was at Ryerson, I fully went uh, with the intention of being a writer. I w- wanted to be a sports writer. I-, I was never comfortable with the camera. You don't, you won't find a lot of pictures of me as a teenager. Cause if I, if a camera was brought out, i I avoided it. Uh, it was different back in those days. We didn't have smartphones, so wasn't someone <laughs> popping stuff up, they had to actually pull out a camera back in my high school days. And so when they did that, and the big clunky camera came out, I'd do my best to get in behind it. Um, but I was I was never overly comfortable with um, with being in front of the camera. And to this day, I mean, if I'm not working. I like to kind of try to avoid it. I don't like to be on it as much. Uh, I wouldn't have gone in that direction if it weren't for um, a couple of my profs at Ryerson who who said, I actually had, you know, I went into a two-year after-degree program because I already had a degree. Um, and I went in to, to be a sports writer. And the first year, you just kind of took a whole bunch of... Uh, different courses before you had to decide what stream you were going to go to. And I went and I applied or not applied. I just put in the paperwork to go into the writing stream. And a professor of mine actually went and grabbed it, heard that I had gone and done this and grabbed it out of the pile and brought it back to me and kind of like, you know, I may be, this may be a dramatic interpretation. Maybe this didn't happen, but I remember him kind of like crumpling it up and saying, you're not doing this. You're, you're doing this. You're going into broadcast. And he'd seen something uh, in, in me on the broadcast side of things that he thought uh, would resonate. And, and uh, so that's kind of how I went in that direction a little bit unwillingly, uh, but kind of, you know, really had a immense amount of respect for the, the professors that I had who were in the industry um and you know just kind of followed them and trusted them and so that's how I ended up going down this direction I'll say my, the biggest struggle of my career has been trying to get comfortable and feel comfortable on camera feel comfortable under uh live settings and and uh, there's been bumps along the road in getting there but uh uh, I'm glad I went down that way. It wasn't always comfortable. In fact, it was uncomfortable for the vast majority of my early career. Um, but you know, sometimes being in discomfort is exactly where you should be. Uh, and it kind of keeps you sharp. And and I, I kind of credit that for, you know, kind of refining the, the approach and the, the representation that I have on camera now.
0: So from Ryerson, how did you get the opportunity, you know, I guess after completing your degree at Ryerson for broadcasting to report for Sportsnet?
1: well the very first job i had coming out of school was you know cutting clips for the highlight shows at sportsnet so my first journalism job was at sportsnet a, a friend of mine who um was actually he's a college roommate of mine uh got that job first helped me get that job he's stayed with sportsnet ever since and is actually my my boss right now is about to leave for a different position but we've kind of taken parallel courses, but I was, I was there for about, I think it was three weeks or something like that. And I was living in Toronto, uh, planning on staying there, Um, but I wanted to be on camera. And uh, because I mean, once it was decided that I was going in that direction, that's what I saw for myself. So that's what I was going to do. Back in those days, if you wanted to be on camera, the the process was you went to a small town somewhere and worked for a small town news station. Uh, You know, a lot of them don't have sports departments anymore. But back then, you know, the local channels in Red Deer and Lethbridge and all these smaller cities, you know, that's where you would go cut your teeth. And so uh, I remembered, uh, you know, the, the, my boss at, uh, I, I don't, he's not there anymore. Stu acre, his name was had, had said, I don't think you should leave. I think you've got a promising future here. And I said, yeah, but I want to be on camera. He said, well, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to disappear into the boonies for 10 years and work your way back. <laughs> and I said, so, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. And it's funny. Cause it was right around the change where guys like Kyle bokoskis and, and, you know, guys like that, Sean McKenzie started just graduating from, school and going right to the national level you know that that was unheard of before now it's kind of common or I wouldn't say common those guys are you know they definitely stand out but it happens now whereas that did not happen you did not no one was giving you a job fresh out of school at a national level right you were paying your dues so I took off to go pay my dues and I mean, I ended up back in Winnipeg, not because I'm from here, but global Winnipeg was the one place that would hire me to, to do on camera work. And that's where I went and kind of started on on the news side and stayed on the news side for a long time until I was the late night news host. Uh, at CBC in Manitoba. I was actually very close to becoming the, the CBC national reporter out of Manitoba, or I mean, that's what I was led to believe. Cam McIntosh got the job, he's still there, a very good friend of mine who's phenomenal at his job. Um, but I mean, had I got that job, I don't think I ever would have made this jump. But the goal was always to try and refine myself as a journalist. And I thought, you know, the con- it's it it was a it was a gamble. Like the, I I thought the content may not matter if I can prove myself as a journalist, then maybe I can climb this news ladder and hop over to the sports ladder at the same time. I didn't realize it was as risky a a, a proposition as I thought it would be because I mean, a lot of what sports is is like building connections. So the entire time I wasn't building connections, I was getting really good as a journalist, I was refining how I asked questions, how I elicited good responses in interviews, which I think is one of my strengths. But it clearly when I jumped over into the sports realm, I was way behind a lot of guys who would you know, come up, working for the lethbridge hurricanes or the prince albert raiders or teams like that guys who you know knew young guys like that who graduated to the nhl and ended up being you know influential nhlers and there was that kind of baked in relationship because you knew them back in those days i didn't have any of that so relationship building uh, you know was was and continues to be for me you know one of the the areas that i need to work most on in my career
0: And I, you know, I must agree with you there because, you know, from all these interviews that I've done with all, you know, these different journalists, you know, I've done interviews with the athletic, you know, Sportsnet as well, TSN, and they've all said, you know, around the same thing, like relationship building is probably number one priority for you to really get your foot into the door. Huge, huge.
1: And and I mean, it, it, that, that, the fact that I did that three week stint at, at Sportsnet when I got out of school. So graduated school, had that job, worked there for three weeks and left enough of an impression on enough people that not that, you know, years later they were looking and saying that guy, but that, that they, they remembered me and that they remembered a positive impression. The people who had been there, right. They, they wouldn't have been able to say like, this guy's got this skill or this skill, or he's good at this or good at that. But it was a positive impression that I'd left. Right. And and I've always said this before. I mean, one of the most important things that ever happened for me in my career I was I was working as the late night news host at CBC but when hockey night in Canada would come to town and CBC still had the property um I used to go with all the camera guys who would shoot the games who I was very good friends with and just kind of like see if they could get me in the building and I just hang around the production and uh and I was in the 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 truck you know, they they brought me into the production truck where all these people, you know, these really important people are kind of looking around and being like, "Who's this guy sitting at the back of the, of the truck here, and what's he doing here?" And uh, I, I remember there was one point where um, they were going up with a graphic. They were using some graphics and they were going through some graphics, and they had the wrong guy under Adam Enrique. And I, I knew who Adam Enrique was just because I knew he was like a dark haired guy, and they they had the wrong guy in the Adam Enrique graphic. And I'd said. That's not Adam Henrique, You've got you've got the wrong guy in the in the graphic there, um, and the person I'd said it to was Kathy Broderick, uh, who's uh, behind the scenes. You know, like the person who kind of makes Ron McLean shine and makes a lot of people behind the scenes shine. And she was just in town doing this game and I think she kind of like you know I kind of caught her eye I don't know who this guy is and well what's his story and then you ask around and all the you know to your point about the networking all these really important guys who are behind the scenes camera guys and guys who do replay in the trucks and all these guys who were Winnipeg guys who are highly respected and do the Olympics and all these things for years you know they've got your back, right? They know how this works. So when, you know, when Kathy Broderick says, who is this guy? They say, well, that's Sean Reynolds. And he's this really good guy. He he's been trying to get into sports. And because of that, Kathy Broderick, that first meeting, you know, we chatted a little bit afterwards and she's someone to this day who, before I would be going at, you know, into the, the playoff broadcast into the Stanley cup final broadcast, she's checking in, in your ear right before you go live, right. And kind of setting the table for you and telling you what they need from you and what they expect from you, you know, and that's like, I take a look at that one connection that was made. It was a massive connection to make at that time. So to your point uh, and to your prior guests points, it really is. And this would be across the entire industry, whether you're in sports or news, you know, reaching out, showing people who you are, what you're capable of, you know, but just like making those connections really truly is the most important thing about this industry. Uh, And and the one thing I'll say, especially about the sports industry is it is just chock full of really, really great people. Um, And they'll take the time. I remember Greg Ross, who doesn't remember me and he won't remember this. Maybe he'll recognize (laughs) me from this. But when I was at Ryerson, he was working at Sportsnet, he now, or he worked for CBC, the last time that I saw him, I, I mean, I went into cover for Ryerson, Elise practice, and he just treated me like gold and gave me his number. And so for a couple of years after that, when I needed advice, I'd call him up and be like, you probably don't remember me. And, and clearly he didn't, <laughs> but he'd take the time and he'd have these conversations with me and just those little kind of connections can, can really make or break you in this industry. Uh, and the more and more and more of them, you make the bigger network you make and the more supported you are, um, uh, and the more people you have to you know like when someone comes and says hey you know it, this michael pagani uh, the, what what do you know about him i can say i had a great conversation with him and he asked me some really great questions those are the really important
0: things about this industry well speaking of great questions uh, i guess i might as well ask my next one you know with covid uh this past season you know we just finished an NHL season that was unlike any other, you could argue that for last season as well, but uh, you know, things were really unprecedented as the arenas were empty, you know, no fans, you know, really you were, you were the only one allowed in the arena as well as there were strict protocols to follow. So how did you find covering the Winnipeg Jets different than other years?
1: Well, the, the fans missing is the big one, right? Because boy, oh boy, I, I you know, and I took to this, I, I took to, it's funny, the appreciation you get for that, it, I took to doing this uh, when I was in Montreal uh, in the third round and the fourth round, I would go down into the crowd because uh, my job after the game was to kind of go live into the sports net show pretty quickly afterwards and just have a conversation with the host to kind of, and, and I remember it was, I was there for the, I was down kind of standing in the crowd in a uh, wheelchair access area where we would set up our cameras um and and it was the game that uh Fleury mishandled the puck and josh anderson scored and then they go and they score an overtime after that and so i'm sitting there and in your head you're kind of like you're getting ready to tell the story of the game and the story of the game right up to that point is the Canadians just not being able to break through and then that happens and kind of everything changes on a dime but I just, uh, in that moment, and then every big moment after that, I started doing this. I, I, th- they scored that goal, and I saw the players kind of celebrate. And usually our eyes all go to the ce- the players celebrating. And what I started doing is turning away from the ice and watching the faces and the joy of the fans. Um, and that just was like, I remember that moment. I remember the look of like disbelief and happiness on the face of so many of those Canadians fans and I just started doing that for the rest of the playoffs for all those big moments because really what I love about sports is the emotion and the passion more than anything like I, I love the I love the you know like the, the nice plays and the great passes those kind of things light you up but what all, what I like almost more than that guy who like deeks and cuts through and then puts it between his legs and roofs at top corner what I like more than that is the faces that people make when that happens, right? When you turn to your journalist buddy and you're like, Oh, you get that face, right? Like that is the that for me, that's the stuff in sports. That's the stuff I like. And so much of that was missing, right? Because you didn't get the fans. You didn't get them losing their minds, right? And so that was tough. Um, so to getting that back and starting to see that a little bit, I never got to go down to the States and see, you know, the full buildings, but you know, you saw the 3,500 fans in Montreal, which I mean, those Montreal fans are phenomenal. So 3,500 fans sounds like 15,000 the way they do it. Phenomenal job with that, but really missed that. Other than that, I mean, there's protocols set out in front of you. Uh, They're designed to to keep people safe. You just you follow the protocols. You do what they ask you to do. You go through that process. I just want to do my job. I love doing my job. Whatever you need me to do to keep the people around me safe, you tell me what to do. I'll do it. That's the, the process I, I took this through. And like I said, sports is filled with good people. They kind of followed the Everyone else followed the same kind of protocol. We got through it. Um, uh, at most of us uh, you know, in Winnipeg anyways, I think we're pretty safe uh, were kept pretty safe. I know one journalist from the Winnipeg Free Press ended up contracting COVID. I don't think it was through uh, hockey coverage. So, uh, you know, I'm proud of my fellow media members and how we handled this. I'm proud of the, the team that I, rep- you know, that I covered the Winnipeg Jets and then the Montreal Canadiens later on and how they handled things. Uh, I thought everyone really came together and did a great job making sure we added NHL hockey this year.
0: Well, you see, like, I'm a Habs fan. So, you know, during that game three, it, like, Vegas was completely shutting down the Montreal four check. Yeah. You know, they did a great job defending it. They obviously improved their defense from game two and, you know, made some adjustments there. But yeah, like, Montreal couldn't solve anything, whether it be dump and chase, you know, Vegas would break out the puck really easily. Whether it be carrying the puck, that didn't work. And it was just off a simple blunder from Flurry. And next thing you know, Josh Anderson ties the game.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. It's funny. You're talking about uh, that really was the story for the Canadians throughout the playoffs is there was, and and I I thought it was, uh, you know, I, I think we need to go back and kind of inspect game by game, the effect that the loss of Dominic Ducharme had uh, you know, one, that they overcame it in that series against Vegas. But two, I kind of felt like, you know, the Canadians got themselves behind the eight ball in, in that series against Tampa Bay. And even when Dominic Ducharme came back and they lost the first game after he came back, um, like like the, the ability to kind of change on the fly. And, and what made me think of that is exactly what you were talking about. The Canadians forecheck uh, was either like bang on and suffocating and destroying teams. Or it wasn't working at all, and and when it wasn't working, you know, like there was Pete the Board made some really good uh, changes to to their scheme in that game, and the, the one you're talking about. It's funny because the pre- the previous game the Canadians had had you know kind of steamrolled them and lost the game, and then they get steamrolled and they find a way to win that game. It was interesting, and then after that they make it clear that they're the better team in that series. But the 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 ability for the Canadians to kind of to, to pressure teams and really tilt the ice had everything to do with their four check. Um, and so it was interesting in games where you saw the other team tweaked and found something that worked against them. The Canadians seemed kind of lost in those games, but then they would, you know, they'd go figure it out and fix it except when they did, which was kind of against Tampa Bay. And they never really did figure it out against Tampa Bay. And I think sometimes you try and take a look at the X's and O's and what could they have done this or that. And I think the more I think about it, the more I just land on that Tampa Bay lightning team was just, absolutely phenomenal the best team in the game they learned all the hard lessons uh they applied all those hard lessons they stayed hard nosed they bounced back so well which meant they never took anything for granted like that's just i mean we need to start talking about you know even if they don't win the cup next year where this tampa bay lightning team ranks in terms of really good you know I don't want to say dynasty because I'm a big believer in like you got to string together like three straight or like four and five years or something like that. But the modern day dynasty looks a little different. I consider that Chicago Blackhawks team one of those even L.A. is kind of close on the cusp of that, even as spread out as they were, although they did get back to backs, you know, the three cups by Pittsburgh. Um, But for me, the Tampa Bay Lightning are right there in the conversation with those teams. And I would even say if they pull off the the three-peat next year, I put that team above all those teams as the best team that we've seen since, you know, the Detroit Red Wings of of the late 90s, early 2000s.
0: Well, I think a lot of credit has to go to John Cooper. And, you know, if he isn't team Canada coach next season for the Olympics, I mean, I don't know how you can't name him after, you know, 2019 they get swept and then he bounces back with a cup in 2020 and then bounces back with another cup in 21. This guy just never stops winning.
1: Yeah, and you know, Michael, a, a couple things. One, my, myself and uh, my podcast partner and my Sportsnet uh, Winnipeg partner, Ken Weeb, had this conversation during the handshake line afterwards, um, and and I had said very much that it looked like John Cooper when he shook Corey Perry's hand. Like you could see, he gave Corey Perry special attention. Right? You're coming and- to Tampa. Yeah. And,
0: and, and I,
1: I said that at the time. I said, you know what? He's probably sitting there saying, like, man, you were so good last year with Dallas and you were so good this year with Montreal. If you you know what it would make me feel really good if I didn't have to compete against you in the Stanley Cup final anymore, and if you'd just come play for us. And there he is, right? And that, the, the reason I bring that up is one, I think, like, you know, sometimes guys who are a little bit more freewheeling of a coach, which he is, right? Um, sometimes guys like that really resonate with their players, but maybe they don't resonate outside with other players. Right. But I, to Europe, because that's what you got to look for in a team Canada coach, right? You got to find a guy that Nathan McKinnon is going to respond to and Sidney Crosby is going to respond to and Connor McDavid. Right. And I just think that he's got this, you know, you could see that, that we, we, we saw the video released of him going through the handshake line and the way that he talked to Nick Suzuki. Like if I'm Nick Suzuki, the way that John Cooper talked to me after that was done, I'll play for John Cooper any day of the week. You know what I mean? Like if you're, Hey, if I'm going to team Canada, he's the coach. I'm bought in already. Right. So I think that, you know, that was a, that that was a real important kind of moment in, in what you're saying and that I think he's the kind of guy that, you know, all these great Canadian players on different teams are going to respond to and kind of resonate with him. And then to your point about what he's done with Tampa, I, you know, you got to think that the, the, we, look at them now as a success story but they were the greatest story of failure in the nhl for a long time and to stick with it as patiently as he did to to help his team flip that script that that's not only x's and o's like you've got to be like one part psychologist to help your players deal with the failure that they've gone through and get them to stick with it and be winners he did that uh yeah i think you're right i mean i i always put him Uh, right beside Barry Trotz because I think Barry Trotz is a guy who didn't have as talented a roster and if the rosters were switched I think we'd be talking about Barry Trotz the exact same way but Barry Trotz and John Cooper to me side by side clearly the best coaches in the game of hockey right now
0: yeah I agree with you Uh, you know and I also want to mention like it's it's i really like that handshake line with how you know he went to all the youngsters and said like you guys are gonna have a good career because obviously he does see something in them and you know it makes the kids want to you know play for underneath john cooper and that that probably sentiment that he has you know makes him an attractive coach to play under well and and the honesty of it
1: too right like all, all those comments that he has for each of those players is is a a brutally honest comment and i maybe brutal is probably not the right word because he didn't say anything harsh to any of them but what he's saying to them is is very honest and very true right and so i mean you're you're meeting a person Uh, and I don't know, a lot of those players probably had already met him before, but like you're walking in and you're talking to these guys in their greatest moment of disappointment in their careers. Right. And you're finding a way to reach out to them and say something personal to them that you've noticed about them. And I just thought that that was really, really one it's classy. Uh, but two is it just kind of shows that, that, you know, like to your point, he's, he's, he's a, a hockey players coach. Um, and a lot of times that comes with a trade-off, right? A lot of times being likable comes with the trade-off of, uh, and and I, he's one of those guys that does it so well that I'm not sure I see the trade-off there. I think he's just a guy that players love. And he's really good and he gets them to buy in and he doesn't have to worry about them getting invested. He doesn't have to, you know, switch it. I mean, maybe he does, uh, but I don't see him having to switch into the bad cop routine that often. It just seems like he's a guy who finds a way, knows how to connect with his own players, other players. Uh, and it's one of the reasons he's one of the best in the game.
0: Do you ever think that, you know, during the years of failure for the Lightning that John Cooper went to Stevie Eiserman and Julian Breezeball and said, look, you know, we have this team, this core, we kind of need to keep it together. Trust me, you know, within the next three, four years, I'll, I'll get something done. I'll show you the improvements that I'll make.
1: Uh, I'm sure he said that. Uh, I don't know that he would have needed to say that. I I think that uh, and I don't necessarily think that they I mean, maybe there were some dicey moments there when he would have had to have worried about his job. Um, I think that he would have been gone first before they decided to break up that core. Uh, but what you'll find that, I mean, I see it here in, in, in Winnipeg, it's really the theme right now with the Winnipeg Jets is the core that they've had the Blake Wheeler, the Mark Shifley, uh, the Nick Ehlers, the Connor Hellebuck, Josh Morrissey, that, that kind of core that they've built and put together for a couple of years now. Um, you know, Kevin Dayoff believes that that is a Stanley Cup core in the waiting. And that there just needs to be, you know, the right situation has to come up and maybe tweaking and putting the right players around them and making that happen. But there is a strong belief, I know, in Kevin dayoff that he has a group that is capable of winning the Stanley cup. And I I bring that up just because, you know, to take it back to the Tampa Bay lightning is that that there would have been belief in that core. Right. And there would have been belief, you know, they would have dissected all those really kind of tough losses and they would have looked at it and said like, this group showed that they can do it in this way. We fell apart here, but where we didn't fall apart was like Nikita Kucherov is not a playoff performer, you know, or, or Braden point or Steven Stamkos, or even, I mean, if you go back to 2015, how important Tyler Johnson was back then a central figure and as a peripheral figure is still, massively important in them winning the Stanley cup in, in this past year. I mean, I would have thought that there were, there were certain things that, and I think what they did, they ended up figuring it out, right. They needed to be tougher to play against. They needed an element that, you know, Barkley Goodrow and, and Coleman and, and, uh, the big rig brought you know that that kind of changed the narrative and brought some bigger defensemen and made them a little bit harder to play against and, and you could really see the turn in that was the fact that tampa bay used to be able to like outscore you six to five and when win a game or six one however it went you know but when things kind of got to, to, into a bit of a grind that, that's not where they shone whereas now you saw against the Montreal Canadiens, against the New York Islanders, who are the hardest team in the league to do that against, they can beat you 1-0 or they can beat you 7-1. They can beat you any way they want. And that's what it was, is they realized that it was going to take multiple different styles to win um, and that they were the best in the league at a specific style, and they remained that. They made their changes and kept that element of their game but also added an element that allowed them to be a team that could confidently and consistently win games one to nothing. Like we've seen them do over the last two playoffs.
0: Just, I just want to ask a couple more questions about your job. Then we'll get into the Winnipeg Jets uh, season and review there. Did you have Uh, to adapt your job in any way because of COVID and, you know, was that a learning experience and, you know, with you, I guess, learning different things, whether it be learning how to work zoom, for example, uh, would you, you know, I guess take those skills and apply to your job once things reopen?
1: Well, what we found, and I mean, it's probably a direction I think, I think one of the things was we're going in a direction in this industry already, right. To kind of the stuff that you and I are doing right here, we're already going in that direction. I think what COVID did in a lot of cases was kind of fast forwarded it and, and also took people like me who, I mean, I'll say it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not the younger generation. I, there's an adaptation here that, I, that I'm, you know, I, I was slow to, to uptake, right? And this kind of forced me to do that. So, yeah, there were some changes I had to do there. Look, when I was getting out of Ryerson, they were, it was interesting because we were still cutting stuff on uh, linear editing, like tape to tape, right? I always hear these stories. Uh, from some guys that most of them have recently retired, but you'd hear stories from the camera guys that that when they started in the industry back in the seventies, they were cutting film, right? Like, and splicing it together. And that's how they were editing. And that seems so archaic. You know, But now what I did is archaic. I came into the industry and they were showing us non-linear editing on the computer as we know it now and saying, you need to know this because in two or three years, this is going to be the industry standard. But when you graduate and go out into the world, that's not the industry standard right now. They're still doing things tape to tape, right? So we needed to learn both those things. Now that's been abandoned. But for the first geez, three, four years of my career, we were doing linear editing, tape to tape, or you' were, you know were bringing in your tape that your camera guy shot and plug it plug it in and pressing a bunch of buttons, whereas you know now it's uploaded onto the computer and it's so much easier. Or is it? Uh, actually, it's, it's honest. honestly, the old school way, I've never seen someone cut a, a piece faster with nonlinear editing than they did with linear edit, linear editing. anyways. I'm kind of getting lost in the point, but you know, I, I came in at a time where we weren't as much focused on the kind of direction that we're going to now. Um, and so, I mean, when I look back on this and I'll look at the COVID situation, I'll be look I'll look at it at a time where I was kind of forced to learn a lot of things that, you know, maybe you were just slow to pick up, or maybe a little intimidated to pick up. Um, and, and that, to me, was the biggest change that happened this year, but it was a change for good, and I think a lot of a lot of people in my shoes took that step this year, uh, and I think we're going to be a lot better off uh, over the coming years, or hopefully decades of, of our careers, to uh, to that it's we're better off having done that.
0: Well, hopefully, uh, you know, locker room access, like, I'm pretty sure you yeah. really do miss those locker room scrubs, oh, uh, post game, post game skate. Like I miss flipping on TSN and seeing those post game scrums or, you know, yeah. post skate scrums. Those are, those were my favorite, you know, parts of hockey growing up.
1: Yeah. And, and I'll tell you this. So, so for me, it was uh, like, I take a look at Scott Oak who had to do the Winnipeg broadcast games this year. And I feel like their jobs got a lot tougher this year because, you know, my job as a host, when I'm hosting, when I'm the rinkside reporter for a hockey game is to, you know, kind of set the table, let you know what's at stake at the start of the game, throw it to me. I throw it up to the guys for the anthem. And then, you know, it's my job and I take this really seriously. And it's a, it's really interesting because there's a lot of people who say there's no value in the mid-period interview. Uh, I say there's no value in it if you're not doing it right. My job is to get a player to tell you something at home that you may not know or understand about the game. Use their expertise because they're the experts. That's another thing. If you're a journalist, always remember those players, the coaches, they're the experts. You're, try- you're trying to glean information from them and kind of get something that colors what they're seeing in the hockey game and may actually make it you know, something come alive in, You know, as the game goes on. So if, if I have an interview and I'm talking to uh, Jack Eichel and and Jack Eichel says something and then in the second period, uh, you know, the, the announcers are saying, well, Jack Eichel said it in the intermission, they needed to do this. You can see they're starting to do that out there. Right. Like then I've done my job if I'm getting that player to help build on the story. Right. But the one other element of my job is like kind of cutting in and telling you interesting stuff that brings color to the game, right? You may not have known this about Jack Eichel. You may not have known this about Josh Morrissey. This is kind of who he is as a person and may kind of bleed into who he is as a player, right? And you get those stories that by, by if I do it in a scrum. Then it's on the radio 10 minutes later, right. So the the way to get those stories so that it's fresh, interesting content and my goal is always to kind of try and tell you sitting at home watching the game, something that you did not know. You can't get that in a scrum. You can't get that in a zoom call. Cause once you ask that question, everyone has it. Right. So the best way for me to do that is to be in the room and kind of get away from everybody and have conversations one-on-one with players and kind of try and get them to open up to you about things that are, you know, sometimes maybe a little bit more personal or sometimes, you know, things that people don't dive into, or the fact that, you know, uh, like, this guy's a drummer. And, and I, I, know that from behind the scenes because I happen to know that like Drew Stafford, his favorite band was tool. And that's my favorite band. And so for your listeners, it's like a, uh prog heavy metal band. And, and I'm like, I'm, I'm crazy about them, right? Like they're this phenomenal band and so is he, and we'd have all these kind of conversations. And then you kind of start wondering about how, like, music may have shaped that person's career, right? I, I, I talked to Harn Ryan Singh as a musician and I wondered how that affected his call and how he did his job. And he loves to sing the goal, if it's a a really, really, no, no, you're not getting
0: that past me. That's a pun right there. No, I know. He, he, (laughs) he actually gave
1: it to me. He gave it to me on on our podcast, but yeah, it's a great pun to use, but he loves to sing the goal and it comes from his musical past. And so I always like kind of finding the motivations behind players and the way that things were shaping them. If I can tell those kind of stories, it can kind of help make a, a broadcast come alive, or maybe allow you to understand a player more than you did before so hard to do that on zoom how how guys like scott oak did it uh in my place this year with the winnipeg Jets specifically uh they did a phenomenal job getting that done
0: well as long as you get the player to say chip pucks in deep you know that's all you really need to know right that's the failure (laughs) that i know
1: i know some guys love to hear it that's you're like when when they do that with me it's like oh that's that's when my i dropped the head in shame i didn't get to where i was trying to go yeah
0: well, with interviews being, uh, you know, done over Zoom for the past two seasons and, you know, your coworker, Eric Angles did a phenomenal yeah. article on Tyler Toffoli. And, you know, I saw how he really built the player reporter relationship there, but for you, how do you create that bond since really we don't have that in-person connection?
1: Well, I mean, most of it happened beforehand. Right. Uh, uh, but a lot of it comes with, um, I mean, again, like, like I i think it's important when you're a reporter or when you're a reporter to kind of show people show your interview subjects who you are right and so so to me it's it's a lot about being you know back to the alstrack and thing it's about being honest and sometimes brutally honest right and so I, and that can get you in trouble sometimes and it has got me in trouble in, in relationships uh in the sport and, and and early on i in my career when when you'd have these kind of clashes because you were asking sometimes blunt and brutally honest questions. Uh, But my, my take was always like, you know, if I say it and I say it out loud, you know, I'm bringing up kind of the boogeyman in the room and let's just address it and move past it. And if you know that that's how I handle things, and it's not an effort for me to like pick at you or trying to point out your foibles or your faults. It's a way for me to talk with you about, Something that's happening and like let's get it out in the open and let's do that. That's always kind of been my my uh uh my tact. Um and so So it's, it's not worked in the past, or maybe not worked isn't the right way to say it, but I've had clashes with athletes in the past because of that. Um, And you know what, maybe there's still athletes out there who, if you talk to them, and they give them truth serum, or maybe they happily volunteer the information that they don't like that, that's how I handle the job, you know, and that's, I mean, All I can do is do what I'm doing and try and do it in an honest and respectful manner. And hopefully that shows through. And then that allows you to build rapport with players because they know what to expect from you. And so if they're going through a stretch where they haven't scored in a really long time, when you come up and say it to them, maybe they take it from you as being like, this is just a guy asking about something that is clearly there in front of me. And yeah, of course, I think about this behind the scenes. Right. And it's not a guy coming and picking and trying to like shove it in my face that I'm not. You know, haven't scored in 55 games or something like that. That's kind of, you know, the the tack that I think is important. Uh, And and so in the past, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is when you're doing zoom calls, if you continue that, I mean, if that's who I am, and that's what players have seen, I think you can still build that rapport, because what you're doing, hopefully, is you're building trust that players know that this is the way you ask questions when you ask those kind of questions. Um, this is your intent when you're doing it. Uh, it's your intent to do your job, um, and so I, I still think relationships can be built. Uh, but the best steps that we've had, uh, you know, back to you know, kind of finding a different way to do your job. The best steps that we've had in building rapport with players this year has been on our our Kenny and Rennie broadcast when we had the players on and kind of had you know talk to Josh Morrissey like you and I are talking now and we hear his dog in the background and, you know, bring your dog over here. Let's see what kind of dog you have. And, you know, talk about those kind of things and, you know, talk how he used to have the long hair and then he's bugging me about my long hair. And, you know, like those kind of things were, those were the, the best moments that we had where we kind of were able to connect and bond with those players this year. And hopefully, you know, those moments are a lot easier to find or a lot easier to seek out once the dressing rooms open again. So make no mistake about it. That's better. It's better for the sport. It's better for coverage. The players may not realize it, but I think it's better for them in the end. Uh, So we need to get back to that, but you can still build relationships through zoom. It's just, you can build deeper ones with those closer connections.
0: It's also better for the sound bites. Uh, I'm pretty sure we all miss those as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure.
0: Although we got some great
1: sound bites this year on zoom yeah
0: (laughs) that cannot be uh forgotten for sure
1: yeah i mean you know it's i i think about this year um uh you know and going back to kind of the idea about you know asking these these kind of tough questions blake wheeler at the beginning of the year you know wasn't playing his best hockey and turns out later on i think we found out that he had a broken rib he had an Reason why he's not the kind of guy who will make excuses. So he never told us about it, you know, and but he was facing those tough questions about not producing the way that we expected them to. And if you remember, I mean, maybe you'll remember this, but I'd asked the question where, uh, you know, uh, um, Paul Maurice had responded and he ended it with say, saying like, yeah, I take offense to it. You're beacon, my captain. Right. Yeah, I, and yeah, I, I, read that. I, I didn't, I didn't take that as him specifically saying it to me. I took him as saying that generally to the media when they're asking these questions, or maybe he was saying it specifically. To me. That's, not, <laughs> that's not the way I took it. I feel like I've got a really great rapport with Paul Maurice. He was great with me after that, but maybe he was saying it specifically to me, you know, and if that's what he felt like he needed to do to protect his player, good on him for doing that. Um, But that was a, you know, we're talking about sound bites. That was a great soundbite that we got on zoom this year. And uh, you know, the the kind of clip where Paul Maurice showed players who he was. And that's one of the reasons why players love playing for Paul Maurice because he'll go to bat for them.
0: How do you solve those player journalist conflicts that you encounter?
1: Well, they're not, they're, they're not always easy. Uh, uh, and I, I think a lot of times it's, and this is the tricky part, right. Is because um, like, I, I, came to one, I came to journalism late. I didn't start my first gen- journalism job till I was 28. Cause in my other life, I was going to be a phys ed teacher. Um, and uh, so um, I came to it late. So by the time I kind of got into sports where I wear, where I wanted to be at like 24, I was 35, right. When I started uh, that that job so um, everything felt like th- I was short on time right so when it started out and I started having these clashes with players in the dressing room um, y- you know I felt like I was short on time and it felt like you were kind of like trying to rush and make it right, you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of times that, you know, I'd have conversations be like, I, I, th- I don't think you're taking it the way I mean it, you know, and those kind of things. But a lot of times what's happening is you're, it's crafting a relationship, right? And so a lot of times players are showing you their boundaries, right? And maybe where you are going is past their boundaries. You know what I mean? And, and, and maybe, it's important to you to keep going as far as you need to go. Cause you need, and that, that clashes with the player's boundaries, then you're going to have to work that out. Right. And, and, and I do think that the best way to work that out is, you know, there, there's, there's a time with a player where I had a really harsh clash. Um, and we kind of needed to work it out. I give him all the respect in the world for him taking the time where we set All the rest of the journalists left the room, and I stayed in the room talking to this player with a bunch of other younger players, you know, watching him and I interact with each other and kind of trying to figure each other out and talk about, you know, like you know, him telling me about himself and why he may be reacting the way he is, me telling him what I'm looking for and why I may be what I may be doing to, uh, you know, to, to to avoid those interactions, but still trying to do my job. Um, And I can tell you with that player, like that was a helpful conversation and we continued clashing a lot in the future beyond that. Right. It didn't, it didn't fix the problem. Right. It's a constant, it's a relationship. You constantly have to work on it. Uh, Again, I, I say like, do your job, honestly, do it. Don't do it maliciously, which some people do. Um, don't, I, you know, and I, I, maybe it, maybe it works for them. Maybe, you know, maybe for you, it works to do that. I I'll, I'll speak to myself, uh, I don't wanna do my job maliciously. I don't wanna do it in a way where I'm, I'm picking at players or kicking players when they're down. I wanna do it honestly. Sometimes I feel like I need to go in a direction where things feel harsh and, and that's just the way I've gotta do my job. I, 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 and I try and do it consistently so players understand that when I'm doing that, I am just trying to do my job and there's you know I'm doing it in a respectful way. Uh, and I just think it's just, again, show, being consistent, showing people who you are and approaching it from the right place. Um, and eventually you get there. And sometimes with some people, you never get there. Sometimes there's just personality conflicts and some times people aren't going to like you and you just gotta, you gotta accept that and you gotta move on. And you just gotta do your job to the best of your ability.
0: Moving on to the Winnipeg jets, uh, season in review here that I have, you know, we saw them, finished third in the North division, which was a phenomenal season. Uh, was that kind of a surprise to you? Cause you know, Montreal was leading the way for the first month or so before Chris Johnston tweeted, out saying they were a juggernaut. And basically yeah. <laughs> and, that was the jinx.
1: CJ. Jeez. Yeah, I know.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, it wasn't a surprise for me. I had them making the playoffs in fourth. Um, Montreal was a real question mark for me because i I'd, I'd done, I, I, I have the honor of getting to cover some Canadians games on hockey night in Canada as well. So I've always watched them in the previous couple of years where they'd go through these stretches and look like they'd figured everything out and seem to, you know, they got a great goalie they got great defense. They seem to be putting everything in place and then they'd go and they'd lose like 10 straight games. Right. And then they'd figure it out and fight their way back into playoff contention. They did that a couple of years ago. Uh, was it the year before the shutdown? Uh, the first game, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. You'll remember this. The first, the first, uh, the first games they had after the Christmas break was the Florida trip. And I got sent to cover them with Gary Galley uh, and Dave Randorf uh, on their Florida trip. It was, it was the year of the COVID sh- shutdown. Right. Um, and, and they'd gone and lost, it was either eight or 10 straight games and they were out of it at the beginning of the year. And then they f- played really well, fought their way back into it. And they were right on the verge of, ju- or no, sorry. They jumped up into third place at the Christmas break. They had a couple games in hand, but they were there. And then they came out of that and it was like first game they're playing uh, Tampa and they lose to Tampa. Well, the next game they're playing Florida And they've dropped down now to seventh or eighth win. They were going to jump back into third, lose. They were going to drop like right down to ninth or something like that. And they lost that. And then that was the start of another eight game losing streak. And it was just, it, it, it never made sense to me how this Canadians team that was so chock full of veterans would have these play these times where they would go to sleep, right? Like that veteran teams, aren't supposed to do that. Veteran teams are supposed to figure that kind of stuff out. So, The Canadians were always an enigma to me because when they got in the playoffs that year, they knocked off the Penguins and gave the Philadelphia Flyers all they could handle, you know, and were on the verge of of doing something really special there as the very bottom seed in the playoffs. So they're showing that they were capable of doing things when the moment were big, like they showed this year. But what they also kind of showed was... During the regular season, they've got these sleepy times that they go through. And, and I just remembered saying, heading into the, into the, into the year, the Canadians were, you know, they had addressed all they need to do toughness wise. They had this crazy depth. They had a goaltender who, if he could return to his form, you know, we know was one of the best goaltenders in the world. And these this defense core that if they could kind of all gel together, we're going to be good. And and this young centerman in Nick Suzuki, that if he continued on like he had the previous year and built on it, he could be something really special. And, you know, all these ifs, if Tyler Toffoli could continue, you know, doing what he was doing. And if Corey Perry could stay relevant and they didn't handle any of those or a lot of those ifs in the regular season, But they did in the playoffs, and you saw what they were capable of. So what I saw at the beginning of the season was this really capable team that I didn't know whether I could trust them putting it together or not. So I didn't know if they were going to make the playoffs or not. They were such a wild card for me, so I actually left them out. Uh, Long story short, I had the Jets making it the entire time. Um, The one thing that you can count on from the Jets that you can't count on, it seems, from the Montreal Canadiens, is they squeeze all the juice out of the orange, right? Like they do a really good job. Paul Maurice does a really good job in the leadership group in Winnipeg does a really good job of getting them focused, bouncing back off of losses, which is why for a good chunk of the season they hadn't lost two straight games. Um, And they and I continue. I I expect it to continue this year. The Winnipeg Jets do a really good job of stopping a fall before it gets really bad. Now, I say that knowing that they had a real law, you know, like they lost nine of 11 at the end of the season or something like that, but but that was the worst, that was the worst, um, uh, losing streak they'd had since I've been covering this team. And I think since they'd come to Winnipeg in 2011, so this is a team that really is good at getting back on the horse and fighting their way back into the fight. And that makes for a really good regular season team or a team that you can really count on making the playoffs. I fully expect them to do it again this year.
0: Well, speaking of that, you know, losing nine of 11 streak, it's so odd to see such a consistent team like the jets falter at the end of the regular season. But thankfully there's that week off before the Canadian playoffs started.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's funny because we were covering them and it was looking like it was going to be really bad. It especially looked like it was going to be bad because they were playing the Edmonton Oilers who, um, who, who had kind of dominated them so far that year. So, uh Um, yeah, it, it, it it didn't look like they had things figured out. Even a couple of those wins that they had were wins against teams, uh, that like they'd beat Calgary and Calgary was a no show in that game. Uh, and then they beat someone else along the way there. And that team just hadn't looked very good. I think it was Vancouver. Oh, they were playing the second part of a back-to-back. So even the wins that they had did not look like wins that you could really count on. Um, so uh, it looked rough for them, but I'll, I'll give you, I'll get sorry, I'll give credit to the NHL coaches and the stuff that they see that we don't see. The Winnipeg Jets saw far or the coaching staff saw a far improved team heading into the playoffs that I don't think a lot of us were seeing in the media. Um, and it's, you know, all those little parts about the game that they were like, okay, now that that's in order, we can count on this, we can count on this, we can move forward. And I'll say this. These coaches see stuff because uh, we had Todd Woodcroft, who was a former um, uh, uh, assistant coach for the Winnipeg Jets on our podcast. And when they went in to play the Edmonton Oilers, he was brimming with confidence for the Winnipeg Jets. And it seemed weird because the Jets were we in this losing streak and they couldn't beat the Oilers. He was brimming with confidence. He basically laid down the blueprint of how they were going to beat the Edmonton Oilers. And they went out, they did it four straight, right? We had him on again before they played the Canadians and you could sense the concern and the worry in him. And it's funny. Those guys saw in the Edmonton Oilers holes that they could exploit. And they saw in their own game, Uh, An established play that they thought could make them successful. And then when they played the Montreal Canadiens, they saw a challenge that the Montreal Canadiens presented that most of us did not see that you could see they were very, very concerned about it. And in the end, they had every reason to be concerned.
0: Speaking on, you know, we, the Winnipeg Jets with rumors swirling around Patrick Line at the start of the season and even mm. into uh, the offseason before the uh, 19 or 2020 21 season, uh, you know, he did get traded along with Jack Roslovic to yeah. Columbus. And that was during the second week of the season. Did you kind of get a feeling that Shevold Dayoff had to make, you know, a trade? But there was also the quarantine protocol. So it was, you know, it was hard to leverage the two signs.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I was actually surprised that he was moved at that time as early as he was. I mean, I would have thought that that would have been taken care of in the off season. So for it to happen a couple of games into the season seems strange to me. Um, but I, I did, I did think that uh, like they were going to have to move Patrick Liney because he wasn't, he wasn't staying and they only had three years of team control. Uh, so if you've got a player that you know, is not going to stay, it's as simple as this for me. And I feel like, I mean, He says that he wants to stay in uh, Columbus. I'm not sure I believe that. I think that Patrick Laine in two years or less is not going to be a Columbus Blue Jacket anymore. That's my feeling on the situation. Um, But if you're, to to me, it's simple. If you're a GM and you've got a player, an asset of that significance that you know is not going to stick around and you know you're going to have to move them, that player is never more valuable than he is right now, right? The more team control you waste, the less valuable that player becomes. So I, I did think that the Jets had to make a move. I was surprised when it happened, you know, with the COVID stuff made it all tricky. Um, but yeah, they—they. They, I'll say this. I, I, I've said this before. I, I still think that Patrick Lyonnais is the best player in that trade. So if you go by the old idea that, you know, whoever gets the best player wins the trade, I still think Columbus won that trade. Never mind the fact that Jack Rosalick is a guy that I, I, thought could show a lot more than he'd showed with the Winnipeg Jets and is now showing that with Columbus. Uh, I mean, if you take a look at those three players, the best player this past season in that trade out of Pierre-Luc Dubois, uh, Patrick Lyonnais and Jack Rozevec is probably Jack Rosvec. Um Uh, but yeah, they needed to, they needed to move him because that I still think Patrick line is the best player in that trade. But if the jets can sign Pierre-Luc Dubois long-term, then they won that trade because they were going to lose Patrick line anyway. So even if, even if Columbus gets the better of that trade, the jets still won that trade. If they keep something, if, Pierre-Luc Dubois doesn't stick around and now is just going to be leaving in a couple of years. Then they just delayed their problem by a year and maybe just maybe set themselves back because Patrick line is the kind of guy, especially on that Jets roster that other teams have to pay special attention to. And he just opens up so much ice for other players. I think that there was Patrick line. was never during his time in Winnipeg, given anywhere near the credit he deserved for he got credit for the goals that he had. He didn't really get a lot of credit for that last season. He played where he scaled back the goals, but became a more complete player. Uh, And had a phenomenal year that people don't recognize because they were used to there. If he wasn't scoring 40 goals, it was a failure in people's eyes. But the other part about that is Patrick line shot is so uncanny and so good from so far out that you have to defend areas of the ice that you typically don't have to defend as a defender, which opens up a lot of space for other players and players who moved in and capitalized on that space. Patrick Liney didn't get anywhere near the credit he deserved for the way that he opened up ice and how good he made other players just by making their time on the ice easier and giving them more time and space. I just wanted to
0: add there, uh, you know, Tortorella seemed to have a defensive system uh, that I kind of, uh, you know, latched on there, which, you know, had problems for Liney because he couldn't really release his offense since the coach wanted him to play more in the D zone rather than the O zone. So I think that's why you know some people were kind of criticizing liney this past season
1: yeah and, and I'll, I'll say this like i anyone out there who thinks patrick liney is washed up like the kid's 23 years old he's the third highest scoring teenager of all time like the, to this point of his career before this last season he's one of the most remarkable goal scorers the league has ever seen before ever ever right and and like that's not counting what he could grow into and the fact that he never really had a true setup man during his time in Winnipeg other than when he was on the power play he had great setup men one of the best in the league in Blake Wheeler especially on the power play but he never played alongside a true setup man so I am in the camp that thinks like Patrick Laine's talents are still vastly undiscovered, which is crazy to say about a a 44 goal scorer, right? you know, there was a lot going on in Columbus and I don't want to speak uh, as though I'm a professional on that team because I'm not, I, I see it from the outside, but it was, it was. Uh, you know, John Tortorella's last season, he was going to coach it a specific way. I think the way that he coached it was not necessarily the best for the development of of Patrick Laine. It's what he felt he needed to do, not only for his team, but maybe also for where he was in his career and the things he needed to show other teams on his way out of that organization. Um, But I I take a look at that situation there and think like anyone who thinks that what happened to Patrick Liney last year in Columbus is a true representation of Patrick Liney as a player is way off. Um, I still think that there's, you know, other teams who are looking for that, other teams who, especially, who have like a, a, a true to form setup man Uh, If you are able to go and you need scoring. And when I say that, like uh, the one that comes to mind all the time for me is the New York Islanders because Matt Barzell, I am blown away by him as a player. If you put a trigger man, like a guy who could score like Patrick Lyon on a line with Matt Barzell, that to me is the scoring element that is missed in New York for so long that if you added that there, that's the thing. That's the kind of move I think puts that team over the top and makes them not only a Stanley Cup winner, but it has potential to win multiple Stanley Cups because both those guys are so young. Uh, and you've got a coach in Barry Trotz who does a really good job of kind of towing the line of bringing players into being defensive players but also being you know maintaining their offense and you know what I, I've always thought this before like my philosophy and I mean that's my who cares about my <laughs> philosophy but, but you know a coach is going to say what do I care about his philosophy as they should but you know I, I always think like to take a player and break him down and not allow him to be offensive, to teach him to be a defensive player, never made sense to me. It's like, figure it out on the fly, surround him by people who can spell off that part of his game and bring that along. You can teach that. You can't, you can't teach what Patrick line does. You can't take this average player and teach him to shoot and score like Patrick line. It's not possible. So guard that guard that, and protect that and make sure that that never goes away. Don't risk losing that or a player losing the confidence around that, allow him to keep that and then slowly build the rest of his game around him. And if you can surround him by players who can cover off, you know, where they, they, their shortfalls in that Uh, I, I don't, think that that happened in columbus last year i think that patrick Lyon was put in a situation where he was asked to be something that he was not it was disastrous um and and uh i I, i don't think anyone in columbus is better for it Uh, you know, like a lot of those people will say, you know, this is a year this happened and it, it made this player a better player down the stretch. I don't think that happened in Columbus. I don't think they made Patrick Ryan a better player this year. I think they've risked, you know, confidence and, and some of what makes him a special player.
0: Well, I'd like to thank again, Sean Reynolds for joining me on today's podcast. Thank you again, Sean.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Sorry. I got to go. Uh, I didn't know that we'd be on this long. I (laughs) would back more. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. That was a lot of fun.